we begin a new sermon series um, for the month of May called Walking with Nehemiah. So if you've noticed, I've got on walking shoes with my robe this morning. To take a walk is to go on a journey, to go on an adventure, to move from one place to another. And often there are interesting things along the way. We're going to go on a walk with the prophet Nehemiah and hear part of his story and see what he has to teach us as we make this journey. Now, I also get kitted a little bit for choosing long passages of Scripture to read for my sermons. So, um, Associate Pastor Davis should be proud of me today. I chose two verses. I'm in the book of the prophet Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. I invite you to hear the voice of God in these words of Scripture. Hanani, one of my brothers, came with some other men from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had escaped and survived captivity and about Jerusalem. They told me, those in the province who survived the captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall around Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. If you've been in this church very long, you may remember a previous series that they did called Walking with Nehemiah. And so this is not that series. This is a totally different one. And today we are walking with Nehemiah back into vision. How this whole story starts, let me set a context for us. In 586 BC, the Babylonians overran the city of Jerusalem, destroyed its walls, destroyed the temple, and carried the people off into captivity. The Babylonians are then overrun by the Persians. And so now those who've been taken into captivity and those back in Israel find themselves under the control of the Persian Empire. Now the Persian king Cyrus allowed the captives to go home. He allowed a large group of people to go with Zerubbabel back to Israel and try to rebuild the temple. And they make a pretty good start of that. Sixty years later, Ezra goes back to Israel to teach the law, to teach the religious principles to the people, and to rebuild the society. And after that, during the same general time period, Nehemiah goes back to rebuild the wall. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah were, one time, a single scroll, a single book. They've been divided for us, so that's one cohesive story that gets told. And we pick up in Nehemiah 1 with Nehemiah telling in the first person, in this year of King Artaxerxes, my brother Hanani comes from the land of Judah and delivers this message to us. You also need to hear verse 4 of that book. What he does when he receives this news. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. I mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now let's think about Nehemiah. Things are going pretty good for Nehemiah. He has been born in the Persian Empire. He's never lived in Israel, never been in Judah. This is 120 years after Jerusalem was destroyed. He's been born in the Persian Empire and he's done well for himself. He is cupbearer to the king. Now, I don't know about you, but in my mind, I think of like European um, 
like Downton Abbey kind of things. You have butlers and footmen who come and pour the stuff at the, at the table. It wasn't the same thing in the ancient world. The cupbearer had to be incredibly trusted because they have access to the royal family. They have a close relationship with the king. They are responsible for being sure that the food and the wine that is served to the royal family is not poisoned. So they oversee who, who cooks the food, who brings the food, who has access to it before I serve it. And they are expected to eat a bite of it and drink a sip of it before it is served. So if it's poisoned, you go in first. There. But because they are that close, they tend to develop friendships and have some influence with the royal family, especially the king. And this is the case with Nehemiah. So he's not living in terribly hard circumstances. He's not starving and trying to scratch out a living back in Israel. Now, he's still not completely free. And that's something we all yearn for. But overall, his life is not bad. But when the news comes of how bad things are in his homeland, it breaks his heart. He doesn't just shed a tear. He doesn't just feel a little bad. He weeps. That struck me because I don't often weep for the condition of things that don't impact me where I am. But Nehemiah is moved to tears. And it's because the news has stirred something in him. Despite having not been born in the homeland, despite being under the control of the Persian Empire, Nehemiah has been taught the faith. Perhaps especially because they are in exile. They paid attention to pass on the faith. He knows the principles. He thinks back to the way God created the world to be and how we kept messing it up. He thinks back to God calling a man named Abraham and saying, through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. We're going to show them how to live the way I created you all to live. And I'm going to create a nation of your descendants and they're going to be an example to the whole world of what love and justice looks like and that it can succeed in the world. He remembers the stories of the judges and what pitiful attempts they made at justice when the judges were in control. How God gave them a king, several kings, to try to do better, and yet they could only hold it together with both hands during one king, David, before they were already splintering and splitting. How corrupt things had become, and God raised up prophets to call them back to faithfulness over and over. He remembers all of this, and then he hears these great promises that God gave us. This incredible destiny for my people lays in waste. And his heart breaks for it. Because he remembers the vision. He recalls the vision of the way it was supposed to be. And he's not willing to settle for anything else. He's struck by how different the reality is from the promise, from the way it is supposed to be. For so many of the Hebrew people, they couldn't imagine the world being any different. Everybody is like this. War happens to every nation. Somebody has to be on top and somebody has to be on bottom. It's just the way it is. 
that grand vision of a kingdom, a city on a hill, an example to the world where all is right, that is peaceful and faithful and God dwells with his people and walks among them. It had to be as fleeting a vision as when you look in the sky and you think you see something. Oh, I see a puppy. And two seconds later, it's gone. They can't even imagine that the world could be that way. But Nehemiah does. Nehemiah says, this is not the way it is supposed to be, and I won't settle for the way it is. I will cry out to God for it to be the way it is supposed to be. He holds on to the vision. Because the vision is the beginning of everything. It's how everything starts. Proverbs 29, 18 tells us that when there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. We don't keep moving in the direction we're supposed to when we don't have a vision for where we're going and how we're supposed to get there. We hear that echoed in the prophet Hosea, chapter 4, verse 6, that says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. We die, we wither up, we wander away when we don't have a vision. Vision is important. And it's been very in for a good while now to create vision statements. Vision statements are good. They're supposed to be short, memorable statements that help us remember our preferred or ideal future, where it is that we're going. But all too often, they're just words. They're too vague to be unifying and too general to be compelling. And we simply end up printing them on our literature and posting them on our wall, but they don't unite us and motivate us and send us off to accomplish that vision. And when they're too general, different iterations of, of that accomplished vision begin to compete. We have to know what our purpose is and where it is that we are seeking to go. This week I was in a senior pastor cohort, something our district does with senior pastors. We gather and we work with a consultant called Ron Martoya. And he threw out a couple of statistics. I've told you before, I'm a statistics-motivated person. 25% of people, only 25% of people, understand and grasp their purpose in this world. That means 75%, three out of every four people, don't know their purpose. They don't know why they're here or what they're doing. Two-thirds of the world feel disconnected from their work. Like, I go to work, but I don't enjoy it, I don't like it, I don't know that it accomplishes anything. You might have heard them talking about the great resignation that has happened as part of COVID. In 2021, more than 47 million Americans voluntarily resigned from their job. Now, that's larger than usual. Harvard Business Institute tells us there are five reasons for that. There's retirement, relocation, reconsideration, reshuffling, and reluctance. More people than usual are retiring. When we hit COVID, when things got hard, when the world got turned upside down, there were a larger than usual number of people who said, you know what, I got enough time in, I'm, just, I'm out, I'm just going to opt out. And those people didn't relocate, they stayed where they were, so we don't see any relocation to retirement areas. There's some reshuffling as people move from one industry to another in their local community. 
there's also a great reluctance to just go back to doing what they were doing. They were incredibly struck by the meaninglessness of it when they had a moment. And there's reconsideration. They're reconsidering their work-life balance. But they've opted out. Why? Because they don't have a purpose. Their work was paying their bills, but it wasn't fulfilling them. They don't believe that what they're doing was making a difference in the world or in their very own lives. COVID-19 became the great pause that gave them time to consider, hmm, why, why am I doing this? And in a very real way, what a lot of people discovered was that they weren't doing anything more than running on a hamster wheel. I'm just doing what I've always done because I've been told I always have to do this and because they want a cable bill and a mortgage payment and I, I, have to, I just have to keep going. COVID-19 shook that up. Unfortunately, resigning from their jobs didn't give them any greater sense of purpose. It didn't help them discover what they should be doing. It just helped them discover what they didn't want to be doing. We have to have a vision, and we need to be clear about that vision. In the ancient world, we have a lot of sculptures that have been created, particularly from the Greek Empire. And the sculptures would start with this great block of marble or stone. And then they would chip away everything that didn't need to be there. Now what that required was for them to have a very clear vision of the finished product before they began. So that they could remove all the extraneous stuff to reveal the vision they had in their head. This is what the Apostle Paul has in mind in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, when he says that we are the masterpiece of God. We are the handiwork of God. Created beforehand for good works, for the way of life. We are the product God is making from a fulfilled vision. His vision of people who serve Him, who live as He teaches them to live, who thrive and prosper and help make the world as God intended it to be. God has a vision. Jesus also had a vision, and he was real clear about his vision. We know this because we have the story of him being tempted in the desert. And he just swats away every one of those temptations that the enemy brings. Just quote scripture, uh-uh, nope, that's not my vision. Nope, that's not my vision. Move on, I know who I am. But he goes away, he takes 40 days, he gets a deep breath to get real clear on what he's doing so that he can come back and do that. And you know what he does when he comes back? He heads straight back to his hometown. He goes into the synagogue on a Sabbath. He reads a scroll and sits down to teach them. Know what he says? We get the story in Luke chapter 4. He returned from the Jordan River full of the Holy Spirit and was having been led by the de by, out into the wilderness. He sits down to teach in the synagogue in Nazareth. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Rolled it back up. Got ready to explain it to him. 
thing is, they didn't need much explaining. They'd heard him. Because I think this is how they heard it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor. To proclaim release to the prisoners. Recovery of sight to the blind. And liberation to the oppressed. It says, today... This has been fulfilled in your hearing. He was clear on his purpose. He heard it in Scripture. He heard it in his spirit and he lives it with his life. He's clear and he has a vision. And everything else he does that we see in the Gospels is him fulfilling that picture. No matter how many times people tried to distract him and pull him away from it. If only 25% of the world has a vision, a personal vision and a purpose, are you part of the 25? Do you know why you are here? Do you know what God put you on this earth to do? What the Creator and God of Heaven wants to accomplish through you? I know what He wants to accomplish through me. I know what He wants to accomplish through us. Jesus also had a vision for the church. He tells them in Acts 1.8, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you'll receive power, and you will go be my witnesses. He tells them where they'll start, right here where you are in Jerusalem, and he tells them where they can feel free to finish, at the very ends of the earth. Go be my witness and be my witness everywhere. That same call goes out to us as the people of God to take that vision. Your purpose as a follower of Jesus Christ is to live and share that vision of a world that is fueled by love and justice, to refuse to accept the reality the way it is, and to insist that God's promised reality can and will come about because it's already come about in you and me and us. And we won't settle for any less. And that's the vision. That's the call that I have to be a pastor. A clear call. My calling, my vision is not to come and play church on Sundays. It's not to be popular or well-liked. It's not to go through the motions my vision of being your pastor may be different than your expectations of me being a pastor. I may not do everything you like, and I may make decisions that you disagree with, but everything I do is designed to get us to the vision that God has given us, the vision that He gives us here of transforming you and me into the image of Christ and transforming our community into one that better reflects the way God wants us to live to make sure that I am acting in loving and kind ways and that I am being just with my own actions and then to advocate for that in the community. Down here in downtown Anniston, throughout Calhoun County, in the state of Alabama, in this great country I was privileged to be born into, the United States of America, and then to the whole world. To have that influence is what we're called to do.
And understand that when I say that, I am not at all interested in getting you just a visa to get into heaven. That's a lot of what people talk about with salvation. They want to get you a, a travel visa so that you can get through the gates when you get to heaven. I need you to pray a little prayer. I need you to uh, mark down today as your day of salvation. That's not good enough. That's not a big enough vision. That's not compelling. That's a step. I need you to opt in to getting on this journey with Jesus. But I'm not through until we are every bit exactly like Christ. That's what he calls us to do. It's what John Wesley created his whole movement behind. Entire sanctification. Chip away, individually and from us as a church, anything that is not an exact reflection of the love and justice of our Savior Jesus Christ. It is a vision of how the world should be that Nehemiah walked back into. If you don't have a personal vision, join us. Come along, we'll help you find one. And let's walk into our vision as a church. Let's pray. Gracious, almighty, and loving God, we are ever thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ, for his journey to where we are. And Lord, for your Holy Spirit that helps us keep putting one foot in front of the other, that refuses to see the headlines as the truth and the final end, but says, no, my vision is the vision of God. Help us to see the world as you desire it to be and be active in making it so. Amen.